Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of the Fox Nomad Podcast. I'm your host, Fox Nomad, Amu Pulat. Thank you very much for joining. I'm really excited about today's episode. I've got a guest. My guest is Tasha, who writes Tasha's Travel Diaries. She's a commercial airline pilot. We spend the whole episode talking about flying, so whether or not you're scared of flying, we covered that. We talk about Pakistani pilots having fake licenses and how that would even how that would even work. We talk a little bit about that. We also talk a lot about just flying experience, but it's also an opportunity for me to ask all of the absurd questions I have about flying, which probably you do too. You know, we all wonder these things when we're in the sky. Because it seems rather routine. You know, we fly pretty frequently, I'd say, a lot of us. Or if you're listening to this podcast, you've probably flown before. You probably are a frequent flyer, I'm guessing. But even if you're not, when you think about it, you are flying so high up in the sky. It's just, it's amazing. So it always amazes me. But there are all these little questions I have when I'm in the sky every time. And so it was really nice and interesting to talk to Tasha about these things. I'm going to leave a link to her new blog. So she has a new blog. I'm going to leave a link to that in the show notes as well as her social media. So she's just got a new YouTube channel as well as Instagram. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. Thank you all of you for submitting questions. So I did kind of poll a couple of you to see if you had any questions for Tasha. So we try to cover all of your questions as well. And if you're listening to the podcast right now and you haven't already, please do leave a five-star review wherever you're listening to the Fox Nomad podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. We're on all of those platforms, and your five-star reviews really help get the word out about the podcast, so I appreciate that. So if you can take just a few minutes, give the Fox Nomad podcast five stars, and I hope you enjoy this conversation with Tasha. All right, we're good. Hi, Tasha. Hello. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to do this. Um, I'm fascinated with pilots. I think pilots are like magicians, you, you know what I mean? Because, <laughs> I mean, I fly, I did fly before all of this uh, corona oh, okay. very, 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 very frequently. And mm -hmm. so when I see pilots or I hear about pilots or I meet pilots, I'm always fascinated. Yeah. Well, what's going on? And, 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 and what are you guys <laughs> doing in the cockpit? Like, you know, so, um, I, yeah, tell me a little bit about yourself, your flying experience, how you got yeah. into piloting. Okay, so, um, obviously, I started flying in the UK. Um, my granddad was in the RAF, which is the British Air Force, which sort of, it was always going around around the family, everyone was always talking about it. Um, and then my dad and my granddad built a plane from a kit. It turned up in a big van from the Czech Republic. Um, and it's a little two-seater plane, and they built that when I was about 12 years old, um, and that had a massive impact on me. So watching that and seeing them flying it for the first time, and then they took me up, that kind of what got me into the whole thing. Um, I knew I wanted to do it when I was 16, so I didn't bother going to university. A lot of people think you need a university degree to be a pilot, but you don't actually need to do one. You just need sort of there is a, a vague level of intelligence that is roughly university level, but you don't need a degree at all. Um, so then I went and did my training out in America. So I have to ask about this plane that was built. <laughs> <laughs> is it like Ikea, you order the parts or how does that work? <laughs> so you buy it pretty much the same way you buy a car. You choose the plane, you pick sort of what engine you want, what seats you want, all of that, and then you assemble it yourself. 
So obviously there is a test pilot that then comes and I mean, these guys are crazy. I wouldn't, I wouldn't trust some guy who's put a plane together in his backyard sort of thing. <laughs> but um, yeah, it turns up in the van and there's an instruction manual and you just start popping it all together. It took, I think about two years then to finish. And then it has to have all sorts of tests. Test pilot goes and fly it. And then, yeah, so that was 15 years ago now. So it's been going a long time. Wow. So, so that gets your interest in being a pilot. Um, yeah. And then you go to the States after? Yeah. So there's a few options of how you can do your training. You can start from, you know, scratch flying the little two-seater propeller engine aircraft and then build up your hours, do it bit by bit by bit. And that way you can take as long as you want. You can work full time at the same time. Um, but because I was 19 when I went to go and do it, I just went, no, let's just do it all in one go, which is called an integrated course. And you do six months of classroom work, which is the toughest part of it. And I think that's kind of what weeds out the people that aren't as dedicated to flying because you need to kind of get through this sitting, looking at books every day for hours and hours. Um, and then once you've done that, I went to America. You can go to other places, but America had the best weather. So you don't have to cancel as much because obviously airliners can fly in whatever weather, but the little training aircraft, they need good sunny skies. <laughs> so um, yeah, I went out to Arizona to do it. I was there for about 10 months total, which did my training up to commercial level. And then I did a jet conversion course when I got my job at my airline, which moves you over from propellant engines to jet engines. So what's in the, in the book part of it? So what, what do you... Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's tricky. There's 14 exams you have to sit at the end of the six months. And it's stuff like meteorology, um, radios. Then there's the technical thing like how engines work, how the airframe of an aircraft is designed. Um, not that we ever use it in the flight deck on a, on a commercial basis, but you have to learn how to plot maps, like a route across the world. Cause uh, we don't fly in straight lines. We fly in curves cause it's the shortest way to get from A to B. Um, so it's a lot of stuff that you will never use again. I'm sure like when you go to school and you learn algebra and you think, what, when am I ever going to need algebra? It's the same. It's a lot of subjects like that. Um, but you got your basics, your principles of flight, which teach you how an aircraft flies. And then, yeah, like I said, the engines and the airframe, which is the more important part. So how many years? So now you fly commercial, you fly. Yes. Three the, years I've been flying the A320. And how long does it take between first class, you sit down, mm -hmm. open your book, and then getting to three years ago to where you were your first flight? So it's different for everyone, um, depending on sort of how quickly you grasp it and, you know, things completely out of your control as well, like the weather and things like that. Um, mine took 21 months total. So just shy of two years. That's not, that, that's not bad. <laughs> that, that's not, encouraging, think, you know? Yeah, it's, it's a lot of people get scared when I say that. They're like, well, you mean you've only flown for two years before you fly passengers? But Obviously, there's hundreds of tests you do. There's all these exams. Even the first time I ever flew passengers, I had a, sp a special training captain sat next to me and two guys behind me watching, ready to catch me if anything went wrong. So it's a very highly regulated job to do. Now, is it like flying, driving a car? For example, when you take a license test it, in most places except Germany, pretty much, 
you're, you're going to get a license, right? Like it's, yeah. if you stick with it, if you take the test 10 times or mm-hmm. one time or whatever, you'll get, you'll be able to drive a car in most places if you're competent. How not at for- all. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's not like that. So for example, my course, the first day we all sat down with our books, there was 25 of us and only 11 of us finished with licenses. Wow. Okay. So it's, you can retake the test, but you can only retake it once. Um, there, Joe, I don't want to say it's, it's not difficult to pass. If you put the time in and you study, you will be fine. It's, it's like the flying the plane is like driving a car in terms of the hand-eye coordination. If you've got that, you'll be fine. The thing that knocks people out of the system is their dedication to sitting in the books. And is it expensive? I, I mean, I've heard being a pilot is expensive. <laughs> yeah. Um, my final figure for my training costs was a six-figure salary. Um, number in pounds wow Wow. yeah so and so let's say you just want to become a a Cessna pilot right like I just want to fly around for fun you know is that less expensive or is that still yeah definitely okay I think because I did mine as one big course mine wasn't broken down separately but I think it's around 10,000 to just get your private license maybe even cheaper um and it's, you only have to do 50 hours of flying experience to get your private license. So some people do it in one summer. Okay. So, and I have to, I'm jumping around, but I, I had to ask you. So I don't know if you heard about this story about Pakistani pilots. I have. Something like what, 40% or something crazy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I flew earlier in the year on that flight. So I was really? on that, that flight from that route. Mm-hmm. Chances are my pilots, it could have been the same pilots for all I know, mm-hmm. but chances are they were, somebody was not licensed, yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, 40% is pretty high. Yeah. Um, so when I saw that story with the plane going, you know, crashing and then, mm-hmm. and I heard about unlicensed pilots, how is that possible in the sense that, okay, anybody can get a fake license, you know, when you're a kid and you want to buy alcohol or something or whatever, yeah. but to fly a plane, how do you think it was one person you had to fly and the other didn't or I think I think yes that's probably part of it I think as well it might be the culture I know from I've got some friends that fly in India and I know that there it's very much who you know and if you say oh my nephew's a pilot or so and so they'll just bring you in and off you go to work it's a very very different culture in the UK you have like I said so many tests before you can even, we have to be criminally checked. We have to go to the Civil Aviation Authority and produce all our documents. So I think it might be a culture thing as well. I think some of these unlicensed pilots, it was more that they hadn't been checked out. So we have to do a simulator test every six months and we get checked in the aircraft every two years. And I think it was that the airline hadn't been doing those. So therefore their licenses had expired and they weren't technically legally flying. So they probably had some flight, you know, they, they maybe knew how to fly, I guess. Mm-hmm. But they no just way weren't like into an Airbus or a Boeing flight deck and make it up. So you'd, you'd th- have to have some sort of knowledge. <laughs> so this story from years ago, and I don't know if you know all of I mean, I'm, a, I'm fairly obsessed with 
planes crashing, which is a horrible oh, thing to say of pilot. It, you no, know? no, but it's really good because if you watch all the air crash investigations and stuff like that, if anything was to ever happen to you, you've got that extra bit of, oh, this happened to someone, maybe that's what it is. A lot of people, so I was asking people if they had any questions for you. Mm. And a lot of people were who are scared of flying had questions and I, I watch I really got into this show a couple of years ago on Discovery Channel or something where mm-hmm. they go and they investigate uh, crashes so they basically yeah. explain for crashes and so many things have to go wrong yeah. for that to happen but yeah. there's this one story that stuck in my mind from Greece and I want to say it was 15 years ago I don't know if pilots know about all the if you study these cases Personally, have we study quite heavily? Um, I don't know if you remember. There's an Air France Airbus that went down in the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, coming back from Brazil, we study that one because that was caused by pilot error, um, which is the only thing we can properly mitigate against. We can try to stop ourselves making mistakes. If that, something happens with the plane, then you know that's up to our knowledge to fix it. But obviously, we don't want to be causing ourselves any more problems than necessary. Um, I think I know which one you're talking about. Was it in Athens? Um, I think so. And they so. all passed out. Yes, except for yeah. one person. <laughs> yes, that is correct. That story, so for people who are listening, that, so essentially, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I, pretty much everybody passed out. I think uh, mm-hmm. there was a loss of cabin pressure yeah. or oxygen. And um, one person... So they basically grease scrambled jets. So this plane is just going and not communicating with anybody. And so they don't know what's going on, if it's a terror incident or something. So they scramble some some fighter jets. They fly up to it and they don't see anybody in the cockpit initially. And then they do see one person and it's a steward. So mm-hmm. it's one of the flight attendants somehow didn't pass out for whatever reason. And they're in the cockpit. And I think they saw each other and you know made hand signals and then a minute or two later the plane ran out of fuel and it crashed that story fascinates me for so many reasons and i've always wondered because it's kind of the thing you see on movies if they were able to communicate with them i don't know the type of jet uh, you know the type of plane but if if they were able to get on the radio or Mm -hmm. or i always imagine like if everybody passed out on this plane and i were there could somebody Mm -hmm. talk me through landing this plane is that possible? So planes, the plane I fly anyway, the Airbus, is very cleverly set up. It is capable of landing by itself on the autopilot. It is not the most comfortable landing in the world, but it is safe. Um, we use it if it's too foggy. If we can't see the runway at all, then the plane will land itself and we're there to take over in case anything goes wrong. Because um, it's quite disorientating for us trying to find the ground, but not being able to see it. Um, if something like that was ever to happen if you can civilians can't get into the flight deck but say that happened and the steward got into the flight deck like he did on this greek flight if he was able to get the headset on someone could speak to him the air traffic control have a whole system where they can block off everyone else and speak just to you and they would put someone on there to explain you through everything so it so is it, possible. It's possible. <laughs> yeah. Not ideal, but possible. Interesting. It is not ideal at all. The reason on that flight that everyone lost consciousness was because of the altitude. If you are above 10,000 feet, um, you can't breathe. There's not enough oxygen in the air for you to breathe. But if you manage to get below 10,000 feet and hold it there, 
which they would of course explain to you everyone would slowly regain consciousness again because the oxygen would start coming back that's a much smarter thing than i envision him them just trying to get him on the ground maybe try to wake the pilots up <laughs> yeah i think that's what they would try <laughs> okay makes sense yeah all right so you check out um probably good enough to get a, a license in in pakistan at least um yeah. there you go so um so how long is is the average flight that you're flying um, so I, my airline is a short haul airline, um, which means that we will go to somewhere, change the passengers, the fuel, the bags and fly back. Um, we also do mid haul, which is around five and a half hours is our longest flight, um, which we fly to the Middle East. We fly to Jordan, Israel and Egypt. Um, our shortest flight, though, is about 20 minutes. Oh, wow. But the, long, okay. the long flights are much nicer because you've got time to sort of sit down, think through everything. Whereas the 20 minute flights, you need to have your head from before you even take off. You need to know what you're doing when you land because there is no time in between to relax and think it through. <laughs> wow. I, 20 minute flight. That's so, mm. so the first time that you get in the, in a, a big plane, I'm, I'm calling it big plane. I, I guess what the distinction would be a jet power jet plane? or an airliner. Are you, are you nervous? I mean, how does that feel the first time? It's strange looking back on it now, because when I look back on my first few days, I realize how much I know now compared to how much I knew then. And obviously the amount I know now is significantly more. And if I'd have known that back then, I would have been much less nervous. I think the thing is with the training in my airline, definitely, you don't have there's no room to be nervous because the trainers are so lovely. They only pick people who will be able to reassure you. They don't pick, you know, the military type that will shout at you until you get it right. Um, the cabin crew are all trained to be lovely to you on your first few days. I mean, no matter how awful your first ever landing is, you come out and everyone will give you a round of applause because you know, you've done it. <laughs> so um, it was definitely nerve wracking, but I think, because you're so caught up in the moment, it goes so quickly and you, you just, you go into sort of brain autopilot and you just do what you know how to do. So, and from what I understand of that magical, you know, what happens up there behind in yeah. the cockpit, you don't always know your co-pilot, right? It's just yeah. kind of mix and match. Yeah, definitely. Smaller airlines than mine or smaller bases. So for example, if you're out in the middle of um, with air, have some bases in Bulgaria, I think, and they only have about four aircraft, which means that they'll probably only have about 10 different captains and 10 different first officers. So they probably all know each other. Um, my airline has 400 pilots of each rank. So 400 captains, 400 first officers. So I do on occasion fly with the same person. Um, but yeah, I would say 80% of the time I'm meeting someone new every day before I fly with them. And who becomes, you know, who gets seniority to, to be the, I guess the pilot and who's the first officer? Is it based on how much experience you have or? Yeah. yeah so my job role is first officer, which means I will always be the less experienced one. Um, I sit on the right hand side of the aircraft and the captain sits on the left hand side. So the captain gets his job by years of experience, a lot more exams than we do initially. He then has another whole round of exams um, and constant testing like it is in the industry. Um, so it will always be one captain, one first officer. 
long haul airlines will normally have a third pilot so that people can go out and take breaks. Um, but yeah, so the way we choose who flies is one person will always fly one way and someone will always fly back. So say I was flying from London to Madrid, I might fly there, which means I'll do the takeoff, the cruise and the landing and the captain would do the radios. And then on the way home, we swap over. So it's his flying and my radios. And does it make you as a passenger, does it make you more confident? Or, I mean, I guess you've never been a nervous flyer. I'm assuming you've been in disguise since you're a teenager, but does it make you like if there's some rough turbulence or something, would you feel like, ah, this is nothing or they know what they're doing, you know what I mean? Or Yeah, um, I think normal things, like if I ever feel a bad landing, and I say bad, there is no such thing as a bad landing. If you can walk away from it, it's a good landing. Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> you know, the heavy landings, before I used to be really judgmental and I used to sit there like, oh, what a terrible landing. Whereas now, you know, sometimes you do have to put it down hard. For example, if it's wet or if it's windy, you need to firmly touch down. So I think I'm much less judgmental of people's landings. Um, yeah, in terms of the safety, I had never experienced severe turbulence until I had been a pilot. Um, and I think the difference is being at the front and in control, it makes me feel a lot more comfortable that if something happens, I am here, I can get myself out of it. Um, and because obviously I know the standard of all my colleagues, if I was on a flight with my own airline and I hit severe turbulence and I was sat down the back, I would know that they know exactly what to do. So I'd be fine. Yeah. And I had read recently about what severe turbulence is. As far as I understand it, there's actually some definition around it, right? And maybe, yeah. maybe I'm just, okay. Yeah. So it's not just, oh, this was pretty bad. So let's just call it severe, but there's a, yeah. and I don't know what that is, what that is. You can, you can let me know, but, and I was thinking about it pretty much. Doesn't it mean that, you know, I had read things would be flying off your table essentially yeah. when it's severe. Yeah, so light turbulence, there's, there's turbulence that we will leave you just, you can walk around, you can do whatever. Light turbulence is sort of, it gets a little bit bumpy and it's continuous. That's when we'll strap you in, just in case it got any worse, just so that you guys are in and you're safe. So, uh, what's it? Moderate turbulence is the next one. That is when, not to put anyone in a nervous position, Moderate turbulence is when our screens in front of us start vibrating to the point where it's harder to see it. We can still see it. We can still see all our instruments, but they start vibrating. Severe turbulence is cabin crew flying up and hitting into the ceiling, overhead lockers opening and bags falling out. And it's about as bad as it gets is severe turbulence. Yeah. And I was thinking about, I mean, I, you know, I've, I don't know how many times a year on an average year I, f I fly. But it's, it's, I mean, obviously not as much as you, but I had been thinking, had I ever experienced anything like that? And I thought I would probably remember it. And I think, yeah. I don't, I mean, I've never seen people flying. I've seen things falling off tray table. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, turbulence always seems to happen when you get your food for some reason. I don't. <laughs> it just seems like, oh, they served the food. Okay. Now the turbulence <laughs> is happening. But I don't think I've ever experienced that. So it, it kind of makes me feel better to think that it's mm. probably pretty rare that that would happen. It's very rare. So in three years, I've probably done an average of 200 flights a year, so about 800 flights. And I would say I've experienced it once. And we had, sorry, um, yeah. we had, um, we had to make a, if you don't know, it's coming, it's called clear air turbulence. It just hits out of nowhere. 
um, you make a PA saying passengers and crew to be seated immediately. And our, one of our cabin crew didn't get sat down and he got whacked into the back galley where all the um, kettles and stuff are and he dislocated his shoulder. Wow. So yeah, yeah. but that's the only time in three years out of 800 flights. Yeah, about two years ago, I did, a, I did a blog post where I calculated all kinds of stuff, how mm. much the plane actually turns. You know, when you're turning, something yeah. feels like it's basically on its side, but it's really not. The angle yeah. is not that, that steep, you know, it feels like. Yeah. Um, and then the same thing with turbulence that I realized you're actually not going up and down that much when the plane gets bumpy. It's not like you're flying 50 yeah. or, you know, meters up and down. Yeah, it's really not cool. that much. So... Mm-hmm. That made me feel better as well. Yeah. No, we monitor it, obviously. And I think the worst you ever get is like 20, 30 feet. So it's it's not much at all. So what's a typical day like? Let's say you're doing, I guess, both both ways, a 20-minute flight or then a a five-hour flight. What's the typical Mm -hmm. day like um, starting like it's the 20-minute flight? How, How does that work? How do you prepare the night before and... Okay, so the way my airline does it is we have access to our flight plans, which are the route that we're going to take, all the weather information, anything we need to know about if an airport is closed or if a runway is having some resurfacing, anything like that. Um, And we can read through that from 12 hours before our flight. So normally I would wake up, have a look at it while I'm having my breakfast, um, head into work, go through security, and then we have our crew room where we meet up with our co-pilot. So in my case, meet up with the captain and we get the flight plans up and we go through them together and just make sure we're both on the same page with everything that's going to happen during the flight, any risks that there might be. We always, every single day, every single flight is a risk assessment. Um, And then we'll discuss who wants to do which leg, which direction of the flight, because you can pretty much choose whichever you feel like. Um, There are some destinations that are captains only landings, things like that. Um, But yeah, so we'll decide who's doing what, meet the cabin crew, have a quick chat with them, let them know if there's going to be any turbulence, you know, any special things to consider. And then we'll head out to the aircraft. Um, We do a walk around visual inspection. This is the same for both flights, whether it's 20 minutes or five hours. Um, Do a visual inspection, you set everything up in the flight deck, and then you start getting the passengers on. Um, And then from there, it's the same, just different timelines. So once we're all ready to go, we'll let the air traffic control know. Uh, We then taxi out to the runway, wait our turn, off we go. Um, We actually do, a lot of people think flying a plane, an airliner anyway, is just pushing buttons or an autopilot. And we do obviously have an autopilot and it flies, I would say, 90% of the flight. Um, But we do the tricky bits. We do the takeoff, which is normally not, you don't just take off in a straight line. So we do that. We do the landing. Um, And we are constantly monitoring the whole time. So we have a series of procedures that we do. Um, We've got ballpark figures. So like a minute after you take off, you do this. When you hit 2000 feet, you do this. It's when you've hit this speed, you do this. It's all that sort of thing Um, until you reach the cruise. If it's 20 minute flight, you then immediately start briefing the landing. We brief everything we do because there's two of us. We need to be on exactly the same page. So we'll brief and then we'll go in for the approach and the landing. If it's a five hour flight, we relax. We, you know, you chill out, you look out the window, you have some dinner, um, you but all the time constantly staring at screens, which doesn't seem very tiring, but five hours of staring at the same thing 
on a screen can get a little bit tedious. So you're monitoring for, let's say, upcoming turbulence or weather changes, is that? Yeah, any deviations, any faults, um, if something, anything is overheating, if we're losing pressure anywhere, you're just constantly watching all the parameters to make sure they're exactly where they should be. And I always wonder, you know, if something scary happens on a flight that the passengers aren't aware, do pilots keep that, do you keep that a secret or, or are you, are you allowed to tell people about it or is it, I mean, obviously not during the flight. <laughs> you don't, yeah. yeah. And it depends. We'll sort of use our best judgment. Um, we rehearse this in the sim every six months. So I've never had anything that I could use to explain it. But for example, in the simulator, um, we will do uh, a practice as if our landing gear has broken. So for that, we would tell the passengers because obviously they are going to hear when we touch the ground that we are not on our wheels, that we're, you know, belly up or whatever. Um, so if it's something that the passengers are going to see or be made aware of, then we will tell you all. Um, but 99% of the time, if anything happens, it's a tiny little thing that we can fix and we really don't need to worry you guys at all. How about after the fact? So let's say the plane was in all kinds of weird things where I'm happening. I mean, I'm just making scenarios in my head yeah. at this point, which I do every time I'm on a plane. I'm like, <laughs> I look at the wing and I'm like, is that wing? I think, I mean, it looks <laughs> right, but you know, who knows? <laughs> so if something were going wrong afterwards, you know, is it, is that just things that you can discuss or, or, or is it, you know, is it like a classification system, I guess? I, um, so we report absolutely everything. Um, the, the industry in the UK is sort of a society of reporting, monitoring, examinations. There is so much paperwork involved. Um, so something as silly as if a light on one of our switches goes out, we have to send off a safety report. Um, so the CAA, which is the Civil Aviation Authority, the UK one, they always are informed. Our company is always informed. Um, in terms of passengers, if someone asked me, you know, if they saw something and they said, oh, I saw the wing doing that, is that normal? I would be honest about it because obviously we're on the ground now, we're safe, there's nothing that's put anyone in any danger. Um, but yeah, if it was something serious that, you know, we wanted to sort of just let the engineers deal with, as long as everyone's on the ground, we wouldn't tell people necessarily. I, I had a friend once who so was flying and he was like, I think something's that that wing doesn't look right. It was like an enth pilot enth enthusiast. Let's mm -hmm. just put it that way. And it <laughs> called the 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 flight attendant. I was like, come on. I mean, they clearly they know what's happening. So and yeah, she went and told the pilot. At least that's what she told us and said, oh yeah, thanks. It's good to be aware, mm -hmm. and so on. And I think honestly, they were just being polite. I don't think <laughs> you know that a passenger would notice something wrong that the pilots didn't know. But is that, is that an absurd situation or could there be something to that? Or, yeah, I mean, obviously. There, I mean, there could be. We once had one of my friends that was a pilot at another airline on board and he mentioned something to the cabin crew. And we went, oh, you know, we'll look at it when we get on the ground. And he was right. It was a, it was a small piece of rubber that goes between two moving parts. And he was like, oh, it's falling off a bit. Now, because I know, knew him and I knew that he had the knowledge, we then trusted it and checked it out. Um, but you know, you do have to take things with a pinch of salt because you do get those people that are very worried and they will try and find issues everywhere. They'll go, Oh, there's a bit of paint peeling off over there. Is that okay? It'll be like, yes, that's, that's fine. Yeah. It was the flap. So it was basically, I think the flap rides on the, behind the wing 
and it yeah, didn't right. line up completely with the wing uh, in flight, yeah. which is pretty normal. I've seen that yeah. on Amelia, you know, it's, so that, that was that, but so they were just humoring my friend, which. Uh, but you know, from the <laughs> flight deck, if we turn around, we can see the wings out of our window. So, you know, if someone, we're never going to ignore it. If someone says <laughs> something, of course we will check. Um, now, so yeah, I'm flying, sure they were being polite. <laughs> it's, it's always nice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, if I always wonder if you're flying back and forth to the same destination back home, obviously, how I, I, I always think how different can it be? And I, I, I appreciate the preparation. Obviously, mm-hmm. it's a complex the flying is very complex. But I, sometimes I wonder, you know, isn't it easy to fall into just going, ah, okay, you know, ah, there was, I've been to this airport a million times. Yeah. You know, what is the preparation like and what are the differences between flying to the same place twice on different days? I think you always brief it, like I said, because there's always variables. The weather is always different. Most airports have different runways, which have different approaches. Um, you know, some will be a straight in landing, some will be a landing with a turn at the end of it. So we always brief those differences. Um, we have a little thing we go through, which is weather, aircraft, because you're flying different aircraft every day and one might have this little technical fault, one might have this one, so you need to remind yourself. No TAMs, which is the thing that I mentioned before about airport closures and things like that, and then threats. So we always go through threats. And when we're coming back to our home base, which is that's where people tend to fall into, you know, oh, you know, we're just going home now, sort of mm-hmm. every time. We always mention that as a threat is the, I've lost the word, what's it called? The familiarity, just, you kind of don't think of it as a, as an important landing. She's go, oh, we're home now. We do this every day. Off we go. Um, so, you know, we try and mitigate that with briefing everything. Um, but yeah, it definitely is easy to fall into that trap. Yeah, it makes me wonder as more, most accidents are pilot error, as mm-hmm. far as I understand it. Yeah. And AI is getting better. And mm-hmm. you said planes fly themselves a lot, you know, can, on autopilot yeah. a lot. Mm-hmm. Do you think we're getting to a point where you'll have the machine doing more and then the humans just monitoring? Do you think that will ever happen? Yeah, I think so. I think in the next 30 years, maybe, we'll see not completely pilotless planes because they can't make the decisions that we are, they don't have the critical mind. No matter how good AI is, it could never make the decisions that we make in terms of things simple. Like if you've got a passenger that's sick, you might need to divert into another airport or, you know, when you're trying to weigh up two terrible options and you have to pick one of them, it would never be able to do that. So I think we might find planes that completely fly themselves, but I think there will always be a human mind there to monitor and, you know, sort of count across the decisions that it's making. Now, as somebody who's been blogging for a long time, mm-hmm. and I've, I've always wanted to to really, I've thought about it, and I don't know if I'll ever do it, but I've always wanted to get a pilot's license. That, that's you something should. that's been a dream of mine. I'm just fascinated yeah. with, with technology and machines and flying, mm-hmm. you know. And I noticed that you have a blog. So I you're kind that. of sort of in the opposite sense. So yeah. it makes me wonder <laughs> what made you want to start a, a travel blog? You know, it's it's funny it was actually recommended to me by a captain we were just chatting on one flight about the travels I'd done and he was saying oh you know I wish I could do go to these many countries 
but my job takes up so much of my life. And I said, well, it really doesn't need to. You don't, a lot of people quit their jobs and they go traveling the world and that's great. But I love my job. I do not want to stop flying. So I have to fit my travels in around that. So I wanted to start my blog mainly to sort of show everybody that you can do that. You can have a career and travel the world at the same time. Yeah, I, I'm, I've been saying that for a very long time. I think mm-hmm. that a lot of people make that it's glamorous. You know, I think that distinction of yeah. quit your job and do everything. And I'm a, yeah. you know, I, I did that. I know I'm a hypocrite, but I don't <laughs> think you have to do it that way. You know, you, mm. you don't, you can still travel and still yeah. love your job and, 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 you know, blend them. You, it doesn't have to be all or nothing. Yeah, so. definitely. I mean, we've got a three-year-old as well. So trying to combine two full-time jobs, traveling and a three-year-old but you know we managed to get it done last year we went to five new countries so it's really it doesn't have to limit you at all and uh so i have a couple of q a questions that people sent me and one of them was actually around this sort of this this topic of um let's see you mentioned all right so when you go to a new city when you fly into a new city, you're on a five-hour flight. Yeah. Do you have time to stay there? You know, do they schedule it? <laughs> oh, you're right, ba- you're right back. Literally right back. It, so my airline has a few places that we stop over for the night, um, but it's only three destinations out of about 60 or 70 that we fly to. Um, but even then, there's not much time because you, you get there, you park up, you go to your hotel, and then you need to be back at the aircraft in 13 hours, and we legally need to try and get eight hours of sleep. So that doesn't leave you much time to do other things. Um, The only times I have managed to visit cities with my work is when we've been stuck there with technical faults or one time we had such a bad delay that we couldn't have legally flown home with our hours restrictions. Um, But yeah, most of the time you get there, everyone gets off and you have 30 minutes to be back in the air again. So I have flown to something like 60 different cities but I have stared at an airport terminal and seen not much else. Wow. Okay. So the, the, the myth of you guys having these long, you know, paid weekends or day trips or anything that, that doesn't happen. It, it happens a little bit with long haul. It's definitely a myth for the short haul. Um, long haul guys get 24 hours down route before they fly black, uh, back. But, you know, again, you've got 24 hours, you're jet lagged, you need to get 12 hours of sleep. You also need to have some kind of briefing at some point onto what you're going to do on the day. So it literally becomes a bed in a hotel that could be anywhere in the world. And then off you go again. It's not maybe 10 years ago, 15 years ago, but it's not that glamorous anymore. Yeah. And it makes sense because if you, if you get, if you get a flight the next day, you, you wouldn't be out, you wouldn't be, you know, having a, a night out because you got to yeah, be fresh exactly. and all that. So mm-hmm. that makes sense. Uh, I'm going to go through a couple of these questions that I, I have um, okay. that people sent me. Let's see. Um, how do you stay in shape? Pilot health. Well, um, <laughs> yeah, we sit on our bums all day eating food, basically. <laughs> um, before coronavirus in the UK, the gyms are still shut down. Um, but I used to go to the gym. I have also been dancing since I was five years old. So I've kept that up a little bit. Um, But yeah, it's just trying to eat healthily because especially with aircraft food, it's all processed and, you know, got loads of salt in it. But um, I try to bring in my own food. 
so that oh, I can. Oh, so you, you can bring your own yeah. food, is it? Oh, okay. Yeah, my airline provides food for us. They, not all of them do. Um, and sometimes I'll eat the aircraft food, but most time I'll bring in my own so that I actually have a bit of a say in what I'm eating. And are you, have you been flying recently? That was another question. How do you keep your skills sharp? I don't know if you're flying now. Not, no. no, I haven't flown since the 5th of March. Okay. Um, my airline is flying again, but they're sort of bringing everyone back in in groups. Um, and my group should be back around the middle of August. Um, but yeah, so there's, again, regulations on this. If you haven't done a takeoff or a landing in 90 days, then you have to go back into a simulator and sort of practice, demonstrate to a trainer that you can still do it. Um, I've now been off for over 120 days, which means I have to do the simulator test for all my failures again, as well as the takeoffs and landings, just in case anything was ever to happen. I've got it fresh in my head before I go flying again. And, and so in a way, a lot of pilots, is it kind of just a, a checkup? There's no retesting in the sense that it's not, you have to go back to class or? Um, again, it depends how long you've been off. For sort of anything less than six months, it's just we'll put you in the simulator, we'll get a trainer to have a look at you. If he says you're fine, he or she says you're fine, then off you go, you can go back. Um, if you've been off for over six months, so if you've had any long-term sickness, if you've been on maternity leave, that kind of thing, then yeah, you have to go back into the classroom. You do six or seven simulator sessions, sort of learning and testing at the same time um, to make sure that you really know what's going on before you go back. And are those test testing facilities, are, are they at the airport? Or, or <laughs> I mean, silly question. No, they're, they're local to the airport though. So ours is in an industrial state about five minutes away from the airport. Um, and you'd think it was a factory. It's just a big metal container building sort of thing. But inside they have the state of the art simulators. I don't know if you've seen them. They're like on sort of <laughs> hydraulic things like this. And then it's a big box on the top and you will go in and it moves around and feels like you're actually flying. Do they have ones that like regular non-pilot people could try? Yeah. Or, yeah. I mean, I yeah, there's... that are as accurate, you know, with all the, yeah. oh, okay. It's the same simulator. They just set it up. You could, it sounds silly, you know, on like computer games where you can put the easy setting or the advanced setting. Yeah. It's like that. Um, there's one in London, Emirates have one. It's an A380 simulator that you can go. And I think it's like 40 pounds for an hour, which is very cheap. And you can go and they'll sort of talk you through how to fly the gigantic A380. Interesting. Yeah, I would love to do I would love to try that. Just put it in advanced yeah. mode and just see, <laughs> just see if I could happens. even just see if I could make it go down... Well, f forget about runway, getting it to taxi even, you know, I mean, I, I don't even know if I could manage, manage that, but it'd be kind of interesting to, you know, to see it. Yeah, definitely. It was one of the questions, actually, somebody asked about buttons. Um, <laughs> I had to find this. People ask a lot of, people are really fascinated with flying. Oh, that's good. So how do you, okay, I'll, how do you remember all of the buttons? There's like a million different ones. Yeah, there is. Uh, tiny little buttons. They, they, they asked a lot about buttons. So how do you remember where everything is? It's muscle memory. So when we first know what aircraft we're going to be flying, because there's lots of different airliners, um, you get all these big posters. And the way I did it was I had a desk and I sat all the posters up with all the pictures of the buttons as if where they would be. And you practice running through your procedures. And you know which buttons you need to press in what order because you have it written down on a procedure list. 
and eventually it becomes muscle memory you know that when you're doing this your hand's going to go down here then it's going to go up there and press three buttons um all the buttons are labeled anyway so you just kind of you, you, it says what it's for um you should know what they do we do um and yeah muscle memory basically and lots of time staring at pictures and do you i mean in a typical flight, when you see all, I see all those buttons, I'm like, do they use all of them? Or are they just like three buttons that you're using? There's probably, I think, I think I counted once because we had a delay and there was a little six-year-old that came in and wanted to know how many buttons there were. So we sat and we counted them. And I think there's 172 on my aircraft. Um, I would say on an average day, we use 15 of them. They're all okay. there to operate the systems and the systems work fine by themselves 99% of the time. So the buttons are there for that 1% of the time when something shut down or something stopped working. Those buttons are for all the backup systems for us to switch on and off and get things working again. And I have to ask you, speaking about blogging and YouTube, I've seen mm -hmm. a couple pilots with YouTube channels who mm -hmm. actually kind of vlog their entire flight. Mm -hmm. And I always wonder how is that, Wait, isn't that breaking a rule? I mean, how do you vlog a flight? <laughs> right? It depends on your airline. So my airline's policy is nothing on social media that has any airline branding in it or anything like that, which would be impossible because my uniform is covered in my airline's branding. So if I was in the video, my airline would be in it. Um, ours also has a policy of no photography or anything up, uh, below 10,000 feet because you should be fully focused on what you're doing. There's nothing to stop you taking a picture out the window when you are in the cruise. Um, but I personally wouldn't vlog my things. I have recorded some stuff before, um, but I've just put my GoPro on the back and left it for the entire flight and hope that the battery didn't die. Um, as long as you're not touching things or you know turning things on and off, changing angles or whatever, then legally it's fine. It's just whether you personally think it's a good idea or not. Interesting. And what yeah. about like, you just mentioned it, but what if you get up and you, you bump the joystick in, in a commercial airline? I mean, is that going to do anything? Or I have done it once. <laughs> I was sat in my seat. So the Airbus has a joystick to the side. Boeing's got a yoke in the middle, but we've got joystick to the side. And I went to cross my knee. I picked my knee up to put it over and I knocked it. And basically it just, it sets off a load of alarms at you. And you just quickly, the autopilot button's in the middle. You just pop the autopilot straight back in. So nothing. No one would know anything has happened. <laughs> okay, interesting. <laughs> so I'll go through a couple more of mm -hmm. these. Um, this was from a very young reader. I'm just guessing based on on the message, but uh, they, the way it was written. But it asked, "What can I do to be a pilot?" Study very hard. Um, I'm not saying you have to get straight A's at all, um, but a good understanding of maths is fine. That's pretty much all you need to get into it. And it's mainly dedication. You have to be able to prove that you really want to do this. So I did work experience at airports when I was 16 and 17. Um, any projects I had at school, they were all about planes because I was obsessed with planes. Um, so if you've got sort of a little bit of, you don't, you can be cleaning aircraft at your local um, airport, um, whether it's a Cessna or whatever it is, you can rock up and say, look, does anyone want their aircraft cleaned? And that just shows that you are taking your own time to sort of put yourself in the environment. And then yeah, dedication to it. That's, you need to, you really need to do it. 
to know that it's what you want to do because if you don't if it's something that you're umming and ahhing about you probably won't make it through the training because it is so taxing and tiring and hard that if it's something that you're not really sure you want to do it will just take it out of you and you won't make it through it good advice um let's see a couple more um Another one about day trips. Do you get to day trips? Do you get to be a tourist when you fly? I think we covered that. Oh. Scariest flight. Uh, what happened and what were the reasons for it? So this one was this winter. Um, I flew from my airport in London to Rome. And I knew the captain. I'd flown with him a few times. We got on really, really well. Um, and the weather was supposed to be completely fine. Nothing at all. And then... Um, just as we were coming into land, they told us that the wind was gusting 38 knots, which means that's the absolute maximum the plane can land in. Um, I can't do that landing. It has to be the captain. Um, so he took over to do the landing and I have never been blown around so much in my life. The runway was in front of us and we were swinging like this all over the place. Like it was hard to even focus on the runway. Um, and just before we touched down, a tree flew across the runway right in front of us. <laughs> but, you know, the cat, he did, he did an absolutely amazing job. He touched it down beautifully, brakes on, everything fine. And we just started laughing at the end because I think we'd both been so tense, um, like clinging on to us. Because we do, we get tense when it's something tricky. You know, you have full confidence in each other that you can do it, but you're anticipating the weather's every move. So it does make you a little bit on edge. Um, but yeah, he did an amazing job and everyone was fine. So. And none of the passengers had any clue aside from the, 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 the turbulence probably come, you know, yeah, they the... would have, they would have felt that the weather was horrible, but there was no comments about dodgy landings or anything. It was, they just walked <laughs> off and said, thank you. Now I, I have to ask, I have two more questions. One, well, I have to ask for a family member who's terrified okay. of flying, terrified right. of flying. I've read. I've tried to make them more comfortable with flying. Um, mm -hmm. I've read, you know, I, I, I read this book called The Survivor's Guide. I don't know if you know of it, but it's a very interesting book. It talks about um, disaster scenarios and plane crashes okay. as one. And it talks about all the things that have to go wrong simultaneously mm -hmm. for a crash. Yeah. And it talks about how people respond in these different disaster scenarios. It's, it's really interesting. It made me feel more comfortable with flying, honestly. It was okay. like, oh. So all of these bad things have to basically happen. It's so, it's mm -hmm. very unlikely. Um, but what would you say to somebody who's just absolutely terrified of flying, just absolutely hates it? So we have at my airline um, fearless flyer programs, which is if you're that scared of flying that you, really, you can't even step on a plane, they will do a three-day course with you, which is two days explaining everything to you. And one day taking you in the plane, you go up, you do one takeoff, one landing, you come back and they try and help you get out of that fear. Um, it's explaining things I've found has helped because quite often we will get passengers who are crying as they come on board because they want to go on their holiday, but they don't want to sit down because they're scared. And quite often just coming and talking to us will help them. Um, you know, seeing that there are genuine, friendly human beings that are in control of the plane, I think makes it easier for people um so if you're you know you're able to get onto a plane but you're still scared ask to speak to the flight deck most of us are lovely we'll come and have a chat with you whatever helps you um but i think to people 
who are scared, like you said, so many things would have to go wrong. And the frequency that that happens is so slim. Like I said, I've done probably 800 flights and I have had one technical fault in the whole time and we fixed it in five minutes and no one, no one would have known any differently. Um, you know, and it's not just me. I don't know anyone that's had any serious technical issues and I know 800 other pilots at least at my airline plus the people that I trained with. So just reassure yourself in the fact that it is such a slim chance of it happening. And even if it was to happen, we are all so highly trained and tested. I can't speak for Pakistani pilots, however, but in Europe anyway, and probably in America as well, we are so, so highly tested and trained that we know what to do. So don't worry. It's all up in here. If anything ever happens, we know what's going on. Good. I will pass that along. I will pass Good. that along. I always make eye contact with the pilots if I can when I'm getting on yeah. and off. I was like, are they in a good, I hope they're in a good mood. Okay. They look like they're, in, they look like they're either focused or in a good mood. I'm okay. And then when there I get off the flight, ones. there are grumpy <laughs> ones that won't smile back, but. And then when I get off the flight, when I see them, I just want to like fist bump or something like, yeah. good job. Like we just flew <laughs> in the sky, like magic. And now we're on the ground again. Yeah. Thanks for doing that. And we're all alive still. So, um, and my oh, last, we appreciate it. Mm -hmm. We always appreciate people coming to say thank you. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I, I did have one last question about drones. Um, mm. I've made drone apps. <laughs> I make drone apps with all the laws and where to fly. Okay. So I'm very familiar with airport rules pretty much around the world. They seem pretty standard as far as the okay. distance for flying a drone, anything. And people do really, really dumb things with, with drones, obviously. Yes. But w w what's your opinion on, on this sort of exploding market of everybody having a drone that can fly crazy? I mean, they're just yeah. five, uh, ten kilometers up, you know? Yeah. So when we lived in America, we, between us, bought a drone. But we all had to get a license. So basically, we signed a declaration saying we will not fly it within, you know, five miles of an airport or this or this or this. Um, when we're in the cruise, it can't get that high. So whatever, that's fine. The issue is the height they can reach is roughly the height where we start to do our approach for our landing, which is when we are so focused, it's the most critical phase of the flight where we need to be fully aware of everything. And the last thing we need to do is be thinking about an outside factor of a drone that could be floating around. I don't know if it was in the news outside of the UK, um, two Christmases ago, someone flew a drone over London's Gatwick airport mm -hmm. and it shut the airport down for two days. Um, my airline has a base there and it was awful. No one could go in or out because you just don't want to take that risk. I mean, I've seen pictures of what drones can do to planes, the holes that they can put in them. Um, so yeah, in, in terms of general life, I think drones are great. I'm planning on buying one at the end of the year. Um, but in terms of aviation, just please don't take them anywhere near airports. Don't, someone tried to fly one to get a picture of a plane. It's not a good idea. Just don't do it. Yeah, absolutely not. Don't, don't. I'll plug DroneMate if you want to know what the laws are there. But there's usually a healthy margin away from yeah. any airport. So yeah. uh, is, has that changed your training at all? You know, is that something that you cover or is it? So we treat. It's funny, we treat drone hits the same as we treat bird strikes. So if you hit, because obviously birds will do what they want to do. Um, some birds can cause the same amount of damage as drones can. Um, 
So we have training of what to do if that was to happen, sort of how to secure, because if it's whacked into something, you've probably got bits of metal, um, but you know, how to secure everything, how to get on the ground safely. Um, so we would apply that. Um, we do have um, things about mitigating, so to make sure proper lookouts, because drones are much smaller than, play, uh, than birds that we have in our area anyway. Um, so yeah, there's, I mean, there's a few documents out and about on what to do if you have a drone strike, what to do if you see one, because um, if you see one, they will shut the whole airport and the airspace down. Um, but in terms of practically, we don't really do anything different. Well, I don't want to keep you too long, but I really appreciate your time. This is fascinating. Um, I, I wanted to just tell everybody your blog, your, your social media. <laughs> so I have my Instagram account, which is Tasha's Travel Diaries. I've also got a YouTube account that I started recently. Again, it's Tasha's Travel Diaries. Um, if you guys wanted to see me talking a bit more about my flying, if there's any more questions you've got after this, let either of us know, I guess, and I can do a video about that. Um, and then my website as well. If you search Tasha's Travel Diaries into Google, it should come up. I will link to it all in the show notes Thanks. as well as on YouTube for the people listening or watching on YouTube. Um, okay. what's your, what are your goals with, the, with your site, with, with, with your YouTube channel? So, my YouTube channel was actually because I was bored during lockdown is why I started <laughs> it. Um, you know, people were asking to see pictures from the places I'd been and it was much easier just to put the videos together and put it up there. Um, I've only got around 30 subscribers at the moment to my YouTube because I started it about a month ago. So I'd love to get, you know, some more people following me on YouTube. Um, we're going to be doing some more traveling this year. So, um, and a lot in the UK. So I'd love to sort of share what the UK has to offer with people. Um, but apart from that, yeah, I just want to sort of let everyone know about what we talked about, that you don't have to quit your job to travel the world. It's really not something you need to do at all. Well, I will link to it everywhere and uh, people can check out your site, your YouTube Thanks. channel. Um, a Q&A, I think, would be great. I, yeah, I, definitely. That would be great. And one thing that I've noticed a lot of people doing, just giving you ideas now out of the blue, but no, I, I, I find them fascinating is when pilots review a movie, they take clips of a movie. It's about flying. And they yeah. go, this is real, this is not real. And they're super popular right now. I mean, they're just yeah. all over the place. And uh, I find those really fascinating, you know, to see. There was a series on Netflix recently and I was cringing the whole way through going, no no, that doesn't happen. That doesn't happen. So I might have to do that. Interesting. Well, I just saw a show called For Mankind, which is okay. about, it's kind of an alternate history about astronauts in the 60s and 70s. All right. Um, but it's supposedly very accurate. They have some astronauts and pilots who've consulted and they've tried to stay. Oh, it's okay. it's, it's, a, it's a 10 episodes or so, but it's it's interesting just seeing you know, the training for pilots and, yeah. and, and the space program, but it, there's oh, a lot of crossover. Check it out and see how accurate it is. I would love to hear <laughs> if it's close. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, thanks again very much for your time. Everybody, thanks for listening. All the links in the show notes and uh, talk to you again soon. Thank you for having me. Thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of the Fox Nomad podcast. Thank you, Tasha, for taking the time to speak with me and to talk to all of us about all of our flying questions. I appreciate it very much. For those of you who are still listening, there's going to be one special episode coming up in the next episode, so just stay tuned 
for that. And I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thanks again for listening. And I'll talk to you in the next episode.